0: I mean, nothing is mandatory. this You're 22. But, like, yeah. I guess it's in encouraged.
1: Oh, and last chance, I am not excited for Shabbat's placement. Tonight is your last up till tonight. Can you sign up for just the day? Yes, you can. Friday night or Shabbos. Can
2: you sign up for, uh, you sign for half of the night? Like, you just want to come to the fish course and then leave? Mm-hmm. We've had people do that. Really? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> After the first course, they like, sorry, I have someplace
1: else to be. They bounced. And I was like,
2: Oh, that's wow. <laughs> All right. I'm not, I'm not okay. There were a lot of questions last time we had this class, yes, and I kept deferring them to Principle Three, right? So I think today we should we do Principle Three. Okay. But before we go to Principle Three, let's briefly summarize Principle One, and Principle Two. Principle One is the existence of God, and the working definition of God was to. Summarize perfect in all manners of perfection and the cause of all that exists. I spent a lot of time on that. And what was the second principle? God is one. God is one. And by one we mean?
0: Not, not two, not three. Not
2: multiple, not two, not three. And there were three examples of multiples. There's multiple in terms of a category. Right? So something that has multiple instances of it. So for instance, people is a category and there's I'm a person, you're a person, right? A species, right? Um, not like an entity which you can divide into different components such as a body has a, you know, a heart and a liver or a top and a bottom, right? And not something that can be segmented. So this half versus that half, one third, quarter, et cetera. And the more you think about that, everything we think about, even when we think of it as one thing, it's in some other level, some other sense. We understand that there's an element of multiplicity. So God doesn't like any of those things. Okay. Now I'm going to do the third principle. This is one of the harder ones, by the way. It's harder intellectually and it's harder emotionally. So on page 36 in the booklet, on the left side. The third fundamental principle is the negation of all material properties from his being, i.e. that this oneness is not a body, nor a physical power. I would like to quibble with the translation. He's not a body, nor a power of a body. That's in the original, um, in the original Arabic. And I know this because he, the rabbi also wrote the same idea in Hebrew. He uses the same term. Okay. So there's these two things. There's what's called a body, and there is a power of a body. We're going to stop here and explain what these terms mean, and then we'll go forward in the paragraph. I think most people, whether or not you um, believe in God or don't believe in God, you think that religious people's belief of God generally is not a bodily being, right? A being that's physical that, you know, it's not like a giant man or a woman or some other kind of physical entity up in outer space creating and running the world, right? None of us really think that. So that's obviously precluded. Um, but when the Rambam of Maimonides uses the term body, he's using it within a certain philosophical tradition. Um, in other words, um, in politics, if you say something is democratic, it's very important if, to know whether you're speaking. Um, in the tradition of the United States or not, because in the tradition of the United States we actually have a party which is called the Democratic Party, right? And so you end up having to say things, I mean small d democratic, I mean democratic as a form of government, not the Democratic Party, right? Whereas if you're speaking in English about Israeli politics, it's like you would never need to say that. Democratic just means the notion of a democratic form of government, right? So words take on meanings when they're in a certain culture, in a certain tradition, in a certain intellectual history. So, in the medieval era, this goes all the way back to antiquity, when they thought about the, a body, the, the most obvious example of a body is a physical body, but they conceptualized what does it mean. The simple way to understand a body is a body is something that changes. Okay. So I'm gonna give you an example of something that is a body, something that's not a body, just so make it very simple, yeah? A mathematical equation is that a body or not a body? No. Not. No. Why not? Doesn't change. Doesn't change, right? Okay. This piece of paper,
1: Could,
2: yeah. right? It can change. For instance, it changes location, right? It can be destroyed, so it can go out of being, right? It can be folded, right? It can become hotter or colder, right? Make sense? So, when we think of things that are not bodies, we are thinking of things that they just are what they are and there's nothing more to them. Right? Um, Abstract ideas, things like that. Things that are bodies have elements to them which can change. Right? So... can you have more than one person in existence? Yes. yes. Why? Well, they're all,
0: they're
2: I know. All I don't think of it what? We're all, think we're all different. Yeah. Right? Yeah. If we were if we were all exactly identical, we wouldn't be two different people, we'd be the same person. Yeah. Okay, well what makes us different? Lots of things. Yeah. Like Lots of things, but those are things that can change. Right? Mm-hmm. So, that's because we have Bodies. Mm -hmm. If there was if if human beings didn't have bodies, then there would just be one thing: what it is to be a person. There would just be one of them, and that's it. Like, how many number threes are there? I don't mean the symbol; I mean like the actual number three. Like billion. billion, billion. There's a billion number threes. Oh,
0: you mean
2: like like the the concept of the number three? There's just one, right? Yeah. Now I can have three oranges or three apples. I can use different symbols, right? But the concept itself, there's just it's three. It's either three or it isn't three, right? The fact that you can have many versions of something is because they have a bodily component. They have something about them which can be changed. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of the essence of what something is and then the body that it inhabits. If I were to draw a square on that whiteboard, right, I'm giving the square a body, right? The color, the size, right? But the mathematical concept of a square is independent of all of those things. Okay. So... What's the power of a body? Well, body's something that can change, right? Okay. If I take fire and I put it next to wax, what is going to happen to the wax? It's going to melt. If I put it next to clay, what's going to happen? Harden. It's going to harden. That difference is because one has one kind of built-in potential to react one way to heat and the other has a built-in potential to react a different way to heat, right? So there's this kind of potential or, in this case, a power to be affected. One, it hardens in the heat and one, it softens in the heat. Okay? Or you can think of active powers. For instance, we have the power to move our limbs, right? We have the power to actually move them in such a way to change our location, like walking. Right? So a power of a body is the power of something to be affected, Right, Or, to, in other words, to be, to be changed by some outside influence or to change one's own self. So what are examples of powers of bodies? Well, everything we think about as a potential is really a power of a body. In other words, if you could do something and bring about a change in yourself, if you could be changed, there's something about you that could be actualized. You will have a power. You have a potential. Right? So... When we say God is not a body and God is not a power of a body, it means a lot more than simply God is not a thing you can touch and see. What would that mean? That would mean all of the things that we associate with body and bodily powers would become irrelevant to God. Okay. So let's keep reading. Nor may any of the functions of the body, i.e. movement or rest, be ascribed to him, neither innately or circumstantially. Okay, so is God ever in motion? No, because motion is in contrast to being in a state of rest. Only a body could have that change in state. So this sounds very abstract, and I'm going to make it um, uncomfortable. What are emotions?
1: Good question.
2: Well, are they changes in your state? Yes. So are they bodily?
1: Yes.
2: By this definition of bodily, that bodily is things that change? And your power to be emotional is a bodily power? Yes. So what does that mean, God? God. God has no emotions. So what does that do for our ideas like God loves us? God feels compassion for us? God cares about us? Out the window. What? Out the window. That, that just window. like this. It, it, it like starts off sounding like, eh, God doesn't have a body, it's very technical. It, 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 what it means is that any notion of God being like this as opposed to being like that goes out the window. So if you do a mitzvah, that wouldn't make God happy. Not because the mitzvahs aren't important, but because... God can't be happy. And if you were to sin, you can't make God angry. Not because the sins aren't serious. They God are.
0: can't be angry.
2: Which, by the way, this just flows nicely to principle four, the God is beyond time, but we'll... Okay. A body is something that it can be in one state or other state without changing what it is in its essence. Yes?
0: Sorry, you're saying that God can't be angry?
2: That's right. But
0: that's the I was, like, know.
2: multiple times that's I that's know. Angry. I know.
0: So then like You so could, could argue that that's just like our inter- like emotion's interpretation
2: of anger. Well, we are going to we're going we're going to the last paragraph of this principle we're going to deal with that. Okay? But I want you to think about it. Do you see how this principle actually in some way logically follows from the From the previous principle? If something is a body, you can divide it between what it is in essence versus the state that it's in. The states it's actually in versus the potential states. Right? And so it's very multiple. Something which has no different aspects is not multiple in any way. It just it, it is whatever it is in its essence. And so that would mean God doesn't have any like recognizable psychology that we could like empathize with or relate to. Right, we are multiplicities, right? We have different parts of ourselves that affect other parts of ourselves. We change our state, which actually physically changes our, 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 our behavior. I mean, even think about it, being emotional even f- requires physical changes, right? That's why you can use like, things like breathing and exercise to calm yourself down or opposite, work yourself up. And yes, this creates a huge problem. It creates, and I'm gonna split the problem to do, it creates, um, what I'm going to call the problem of our religious texts, right? The Torah and both the written and oral Torah seem to describe God as in bodily ways, at least in emotional ways. And then it also creates what I'm going to call the problem of religious experience. How exactly are you supposed to develop a relationship with a being that, that is just a blank? Like there's no... Even if I can work around what the texts say, like, I'm supposed to pray to God, I'm supposed to love God, I'm supposed to adore God, I'm supposed to to have awe of God, like, this is a major problem, okay? Okay, so to keep things moving, we'll just keep reading the paragraph and then we'll come back to this. Um, Therefore, our sages negate the possibility of joining anything to him or separating anything from him. They said... To him cannot be ascribed either sitting or standing, either separation or combination. And then they use, he goes into a little technical, the word the word ipwe they use means combination, as reflected in this verse about joining shoulders. So the idea is like this. Can anything, if you can join something, that means it could be in a state of bondedness. It could be a state of separation. That's bodily. So can you get closer to God? It doesn't seem like it, right? if you're getting closer to God, that would mean God is going from relative to you from a state of distance to a state of
1: closeness.
2: We get we stay. So, okay, we're going to have to figure out how to, how to do this because we, we do have some notion of getting closer to God, right? In reflection of God's uniqueness, the prophet says, to him will you liken God and to him will you compare me that I shall be his equal, says the Holy One. If he had a body, he would be compared to other bodies. Okay, this, is, this, this is the idea that when I describe something in terms of something else, it's because there's some kind of similarity. Right? We use the fact that things are similar to things that we know in order to describe them. Well, if God doesn't have anything other than his just being a God, then there's nothing that he has that's like anything else. Right? And that's what follows along but he's just he's just his essential being. Like, where do you even begin to start describing God? Is he big? Is God big? No. Is he small? Also no. Is God male? No. Not. No, is he female? No. Is God sentient? Is that what? Sentient, self-aware. We want to say yes. We want to say yes because we feel like saying that would be wrong. But the problem is like, I don't know, is, is self-awareness a, like a state that like, like you can develop and lose and I mean think about it, right? Like when you yeah. go to sleep. So it can't be sentient the way I mean sentient, right? So you're under this problem that God not having a body, as you run this through, makes God completely alien, completely other, completely undescribable, completely unrelatable. At which point you might as well say, like, I'm going to throw in the towel and just, like, focus on learning the laws of kosher and mikvah, because those are at least things, something that I can make sense of, (laughs) as hard as they are. Which is what many Jews do, actually, including many Orthodox Jews, because it's just, it's hard. Okay. Now... In the grand history of um, Jewish theology, there are basically two approaches to dealing with this issue. And again, the issue is twofold. Number one, if God really has no body, God really has no powers of body, the functions of body, changes in state, none of these things are applicable to God in any way. A, how do we explain our texts? And then also B, how are we supposed to have a religious experience of closeness to God, of loving God, of fearing God, etc.? There are two approaches. One is the approach that the Rambam is going to use here, Mahmoud is going to use here, um, and we're going to call that the philosophical approach. The other approach is going to be what we're going to call the Kabbalistic approach. Now, when I say there's two approaches, I don't mean that there's only two approaches. I mean broadly all approaches fit into one of these two categories or attempt to synthesize these two approaches. Okay. Um, in other words, that we have a tension here and we're going to have to either make some kind of creative endeavor to re-understand mm-hmm. things in one way or in the other way. I'm going to use like, simple labels first. Okay? Let's just focus on the idea of God loving. Okay? It says in the Torah, God loves us. Okay? One approach is going to be to say that love doesn't really mean love. And the other approach is going to say that when we say God loves us, it doesn't really mean God. In other words, one thing is going to get sacrificed to preserve the other. Either we're going to say that when, the, when our scripture tells us that God loves us, it doesn't really mean love. You have to figure out, okay, then what does it mean? Or alternatively, when said God loves it doesn't really mean God. But one of those two terms is going to get, have to be massaged or dealt with in a more creative way to resolve this tension. Because to take it literally that God actually loves us in the most literal sense would mean that God has a, has a body, which means God has parts, which means God has something that holds them together, which means God isn't God. And mm-hmm. God this. See, these principles kind of follow logically one from the other. Okay. Now, there are, in addition to this, two approaches to Judaism. One approach is to say, this is hard, avoid dealing with this. And the other approach is to say, this is important, you have to confront it. The view of the Rambam, the view in Chabad, the view in many um, um, segments of Jewish tradition is that this is important and must be confronted. But for the purpose of honesty, there are, is a counter um, approach as well. Those that say that because this is beyond what most people can deal with, it's better to just avoid the issue altogether. That's not just a weakness, but ideally, you know, you're, gonna, you're, you're getting yourself into a bigger quagmire than you can handle and you're better off just setting these issues aside. Um, so like not
0: praying?
2: No, praying, but don't think too much about how could God be God and also experience love because that'll just get you confused. It's just better just like, pretend that you haven't thought too deeply about this and pretend you're back the age of six when you pray to God. When you're six, you don't really think about yeah. these things. Okay, so um, this is a view that is often attributed to, say, people such as of Nachman of Breslov. Maybe debate, whether they really held that, but... Um, and... Um, there are some of the medieval commentators took this view as well. So it's, it's an outstanding dispute in, in Jewish thought that setting aside the theology, like because this is hard, because this is challenging, how much this should be something that we encourage people to grapple with and how much we should just say, like, leave it to the intellectual elite, the mystics, and the, the common regular Jew should just kind try of try treat these things with kind of childlike simplicity. But being a Chabad rabbi, we're going to dive headlong into this. Whether you like it or not. Okay, so let's. The Rambam takes the approach that when we say love, we don't really mean love. When we say hate, we don't really mean hate. When we say God, whatever does any of these. Whenever we're using any of these bodily terms, these change of state terms, we don't really mean them. Okay, all the descriptions of human physical terms—walking, standing, sitting, speaking, and the like—found in Scripture are borrowed terms and analogies. As our sages said, the Torah speak in the language of men. This concept was spoken about at length. This is the third fundamental principle as reflected in the verse, you did not see any form. Meaning you did not see him as having a form because as mentioned, he possesses neither a body or physical power, or bodily power. So when God was revealed to them in Mount Sinai, did they see anything? Did they experience like a sense of like, that is God?
1: Yeah.
2: No, they could not have. Because if you could experience that is God, he
1: wouldn't be God that,
2: whatever the that is couldn't be God. That's a good question.
1: Okay.
2: It's going to your own. So let's first take what the Ram says, that they're, they're analogies. Okay. So, uh, I'll tell you a personal pet peeve of mine is where someone says something and they say, but I mean it in spiritual terms. It's like, uh, you know, when we, when we, when we do mitzvahs, we, it's like giving God a hug, but in spiritual terms, in a spiritual sense, to which my response is that God is a hot dog. In a spiritual sense,
1: <laughs>
2: why is that funny? Why is it funny to say God is a hot dog in a spiritual sense? It's, it's, it's a what? Why is it ridiculous? Because no rational person would ever compare a being like God to a uh, hot dog. What rational person would compare God to? Um, A biological organism that has two appendages that can be used to embrace the torso of another biological organism to convey feelings of familiar bond and group identity but like you do that what's the difference we just made a hug so unappealing (laughs) I had a relative once who asked me, is God like the force from Star Wars? And I said, God is like a potato. I said, what do you mean God's like a potato? I was like, well, potatoes are hidden. They're in the ground. You can't see them. Potatoes can take on many forms. Potatoes are nourishing. God is hidden. God takes on many forms in his manifestation of lives, and he nourishes us. So God is like a potato.
0: God doesn't have a physical power. God can't take
2: That's exactly the point, right? This is exactly the point. Is that when you say something is an analogy, if you don't do the work of figuring out what you're trying to say by using borrowed terminology and analogies, you're not saying anything important. So let's take the easiest one. What do we mean we say God speaks? God
1: communicates. No. We hear something.
2: Okay, we're getting closer, and I want to differentiate the two. Right, that would be, right, this would be the Ramah and I want to go step by step. The issue, the issue with, with communicates is that anytime you're using any active verb by God, you're really not speaking accurately, because an active verb is utilizing a power. It's a change in state. So, somehow, God causes it to be the case that we know things. Mm-hmm. But if we think about God doing an activity, then what's happening? He's moving from a passive state to a an active state. An active state. So, if we wanted to sound all philosophically correct, we would say we are informed by God rather than God speaks, but that's awkward, and so the Torah just says God speaks. Right? And the idea of speaking here is not so much that we hear words, but that we possess knowledge.
0: But there was a before and
2: after. But that before, and here's the key thing does that before and after exist? Let's use the example of Moshe, Moses. Is the before and after part of Moshe's reality or part of God's reality? Mm-hmm. Right. In other words, it's not we're saying at one point God was not talking and then at one point God started talking and then he stopped talking. What we're saying is at one point Moshe didn't know this stuff and at another point Moshe did know this stuff and God is the cause of that shift. But the shift occurred where? Mm-hmm. In Moshe's psyche. God did not change things. Now, I don't know how God does that. Like, how do you accomplish? Okay, I'm not God. I don't know. Oh, it's like the idea that He like
0: just went up to the mountain and then
2: felt different? Right. He went up to the mountain and somehow God caused him to know things. But again, it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't like, and this we'll, we'll talk more when we talk about God being beyond time. But it wasn't like at one point God was being quiet and then he got started talking. It's that God causes things to be, as we went in the first principle. And at some point, the thing that came into being was the knowledge in Moshe's mind.
0: Did the Torah just drop from the
2: sky? Well, it wasn't a physical thing. I mean, there, except the tablets, they were physical. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So it just dropped
0: from the I don't,
2: sky. I don't know, I guess. Or maybe it coalesced on the mountain, I don't know. It wasn't there, it wasn't there um, originally, and then, you know, I mean, how did the world come into being? It just it, At one point it was in... It was I know, just, it's, uh, it's very, very <laughs> weird. Okay, so, so this one is the easy one because it's very clear to see that we can at least understand the change occurring where? In
1: ourselves.
2: In ourselves. Okay, well what about God getting angry now? What is that supposed to mean?
1: But God can't
2: feel emotion. But God doesn't feel emotion. We
1: should understand it's like anthropomorphizing.
2: So Okay, but 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 what anthropomorphizing just means we're using we're we're just using human terms to describe it. What does it mean that God gets angry? Okay, let's think about this. We'll talk about this later, but a principle is that one of the principles is reward and punishment, which means if someone does something wrong, what will happen? They'll be punished. punished. Who is the cause of their punishment? Their authority figure. God. Right, that is God who is reward and punishment. Okay, now, if... How do we view people who do things that hurt us? We think of them as having what kind of emotions towards us. Negative emotions, right? So if I were to use human motivations as a metaphoric description of what is happening to us when we sin. So when you sin, what happens? Not you, you would never sin. You're all righteous people, right? The Jews in the in the in the desert, when they sin with the golden calf, what happens? They're punished. That punishment is caused by God. So if you were to think of God in human terms, it would be, angry. it would seem to, it would feel like God is angry with you. But does that necessarily mean God is actually angry with you? No. Now, I'm going to give you a physical analogy for this. Let's say you have some water and the water is very, very hot. Now we know enough about water to know that water is just not inherently hot, right? If water is hot, something has to heat the water. So if you get to see some hot water, you're like, okay, well, the water is hot because something heated the water. What do you know about the heat source? That it's hot, right? Not true. Microwaves heat water, but they themselves are not hot. So, what you did is you made the mistake of since most of the time, or maybe all the time, when you experience something heating something else, it's sharing its own heat, you then project that onto the other things and say, well, it must be sharing its own heat. And that's essentially what we're saying is that the Torah is written in such a way. Be- to, to use kind of the human model of understanding things, but it's not only really describing what God is experiencing in God's state, it's describing what's happening to us that God is causing. Now, why is he causing punishment? Because the person sinned, and then you do the reverse. Okay, so, let's, so what does it mean God loves us? Does it mean that when God looks at us, he feels all warm and such, like, I, I have a one-month-old baby. And sometimes you just holding it. Oh, he's so cute. Is that what's happening? Sometimes God's like, Oh, Jewish people, I loved them." No, that's not what's happening, unfortunately. It'd be nice to feel that way, but apparently not, because God can't feel that way about anything God can't feel, apparently, because it's a change in state. So what does it mean God loves us? If you would follow this view?
1: Good things happen to us, and so we think that
2: that is God's way. Okay, we're getting, we're, 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 we're getting somewhere. So... I love my, my one-month-old son, right? I love more people than that. We'll just use an example. So if... Do I in, do things to ensure his well-being? Those are actions taken based on my love. Mm-hmm. Okay. Does God ensure the ongoing survival and ultimate thriving and flourishing of the Jewish people? Yes. And if I were to use an emotional motivation as a metaphor for that, what would be the right one to use? No. Love. Why use emotions at all? Why use emotions at all? That is a fair question. Um, I'm going to take a chumash, okay, uh, uh, a the Five Books of Moses, and I'm going to read it, okay, but I'm going to read it in the most philosophically accurate manner, okay. So, yeah. gonna... oh. I apologize. um, The state of the heavens and earth as they came into being ex nihilo due to an unknown cause was that the heaven and earth were in an unformed state and the spirit of the unknown cause rested upon the deep, upon the water. Then light came into being due to the unknown cause The light was a positive thing and was given a distinct, and and, and was given a um, distinct domain by the unknown cause. The domain of the light was designated as day, and the domain of, of, of of the darkness was designated night by the unknown cause. And this completed one cycle of creation. A firmament was formed separating between the upper and lower waters by the unknown cause. Is this harder to listen to? Yes. Yeah. Why? No. <laughs> I didn't say it's impossible. Is it harder to listen to? Yeah. Yes. Okay, now let's move on a little bit. To the, okay? Move from the... Okay. Um, let's go here. Noah became aware as a result of the unknown cause that an end of all flesh was going to occur. Because of the wickedness of flesh and destroying the function of the earth. Noah became aware that he should make an yeah. uh, a, a, a ark. What's happening to God as I keep reading like this? I can't have, he, becomes the, he becomes like unknown, unknown he's passive, he's never active. Now, if you are like deeply philosophical, maybe that's fine. You can figure that out. You can appreciate that. Can you read this to children? Can you read this to people who are trying to eke out a living? No. No. Does this convey the reality of God in the same way as in the beginning of God's creation of the heavens and the earth, God said this, and God did that, and God, God is a power. God has relevance, right? Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah? It gives him a beingness. It gives him a beingness. And so the philosopher of the says that language is meant to communicate. And if God is rendered to the realm of theoretical abstraction so that God seems irrelevant to a person reading the text... Yeah. You haven't succeeded, even if you are being conceptually more precise. Mm-hmm. The point of
0: putting the Torah into words, anyway, was
2: to, okay. to communicate to people. Now, that's true for Ram say, for people who are deep and intellectual that they can they can start to delve deeper to understand that we shouldn't read these things in that same literal sense. Okay, fine. Um, and, and this is important, by the way. Like, imagine you imagine we were to go to a child, okay, and you would tell a child, you know. When Hashem spoke to Moshe, He didn't actually talk. And you tell that to your three-year-old, the three-year-old has no idea what you want from them, right? My three-year-old actually asking me questions about God. So right as he turned three, like yeah, yeah, around his third birthday. So he had one to a few things. First off, he wanted to know does God does God use a bus to get around? (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> and what did I say? Limo. That it yeah. It.
2: Yeah. Yes. God does use a bus to get around. God does have a bus to get around. Um, does God wear glasses? No, I told him God does not wear glasses. Except he
0: has great
2: vision? Right. The reason is because is there a notion in Judaism that we have to do things to enable to God to come into our lives? Yes. And so we speak about this notion of a markava, which is Hebrew for a vehicle for God. Okay, so like, yes, just like a person makes use of things to go places, there is such an analogous notion of God. And when you're three, I'm not going to talk about that this is in a very abstract sense. And, but yes, there is such an idea that God is a being and, and, and there are things that facilitate him coming where he wants to go, so to speak. That, that, that is a valid concept. And if The only way you can relate that is thinking of a God. I mean, the Torah speaks about God riding a chariot. So like, what's the difference? In my three-year-old world, there's no chariots. There's, there's buses. Okay. Um, but it never speaks about, to my knowledge, about like, God not being able to see something and having to put on glasses to clarify his vision. Now, the thing is, once you get older, right? once the kid starts turning 10, 11, 12, right, they say, wait a minute, God needs to write it. That doesn't make any sense, right? So you have to update what we mean by that and update what we mean by that. And if you keep doing that, you can get to a point. Right, so if you just use the example of, of eyes, right? Does God have eyes? Well, it depends who you're talking to. Some people, some God doesn't have eyes. It just means God can't see anything. So you say, yeah, God has eyes. And that's how the Chumash was written. God has eyes. But if you're a little deeper, eyes is just a metaphoric way of making it more tangible that God can see, right? But let's go one step further. Does God really see? Why do you need to see? What does seeing accomplish? What?
0: Opposite of being blind.
2: The opposite of being blind, right? Without seeing, you cannot be aware of what's going on around you, right? So we are essentially blind, and we have vision to compensate. What if you inherently were aware of reality? Would you need to see? Okay, so really, eyes is just analogy, is just a more tangible way of saying saying that God sees, and seeing is just a more active way of saying that just God is aware. And then we could even go that further and further and further, and you get to some point where you get the limits of your ability to abstract. But if you read the Torah written in the most pure, effective use of philosophical language, you've made the Torah useful to one being and one being only, which is probably Moshe himself. And everyone else will fully understand it. And so instead the Torah is written in a way that even a small child can get the basic message. God is a real being. He is relevant. He runs the world, right? And then you have to do the work of realizing that we don't mean these things in exactly the way you say. Now, going back to my spiritual hot dog, if by... If by hot dog I mean something that nourishes us in a mysterious manner, (laughs) then maybe God is is his virtual hot dog. Yeah?
0: So what if, like, your son, like, just for example, like, if he's 11 years old and you teach him, like, that God, like, you can't see God, all these things, and he's still, like, it doesn't, like, grasp with him, just like this is an example, not exactly your son, but um, it doesn't, like, stick with him and it's still, like, he has a better connection with God if he thinks of God as, like, the bus, but he knows better that that someone's telling him that it's not that? Is it wrong to still think of God as, like, going on the bus if that, like, makes you have a better connection with him?
2: So I would say this. There's two things. There's a very big difference between children and adults. Mm -hmm. Um, I I, I do not teach children professionally, but I do have eight children, so that's my experience of of children. Mm -hmm. Children are not like adults. They're really, really not um, and sometimes it's easy to forget this. That like multiple layer level of thinking, mm-hmm. like I know this is wrong, but it's useful for me. So like, like, even like, even really smart children, especially like prior to like puberty setting it, they don't, they don't have like multi-track way of relating to reality. Sure. And so like, it's a whole different question. Now, if you're asking yourself as an adult, so then I would give you a very different answer. The answer is be that's not okay. Because that is the that is the line that eventually leads to idolatry. Because you start what? That 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 where you're saying, like, I know God isn't really like this, but it's hard to relate to God, so I'm going to like have this other Thing that I've either created with my mind or another thing saying it, and that is going to represent God and symbolize God to me, and I will direct my worship there. And that's, that's literally how, in our tradition, idol worship develops. Because eventually, what happens is that our, our psychological attachment becomes very wrapped up to what represents God to us, and God becomes an afterthought and to eventually. You know, if this goes on enough, God becomes just like a, a, a non-entity altogether. Um, and, I mean, if you think about, like, how did the people start worshipping, like, actual idols of stone? Like, nobody actually thinks a stone can, can has any, like, creative power. Stone is not a god.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And the way it's understood in our tradition is that it was, you know, it was, it was, starts off by trying to have this notion of, of representing God's powers and then you build kind of narratives around those powers. You make symbols representing those powers. And eventually, people gravitate to what's tangible. And then you end up with you know, all of your you know, Greek and Egyptian pagan mythologies and statues and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's, it's a very dangerous thing. And that, that's why right after the giving of the Torah, there's this whole thing, you didn't see anything, don't make any images, don't make any... You don't, 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 don't do that. Because it is a very strong tendency to do that. Who said that? God, in the Torah.
0: Okay.
2: Right. Um, I guess now the of the
0: Torah, it, says
2: that. it says right after right at right after the description of the revelation of Mount Sinai,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, it says um, things like Kol You do not see any form. Lay Kol." Do not make any images. And, and like, what's well, Why would I make any images? Because of that. And this is why, by the way, in the ancient world, Jews were considered to be very, very weird, because we believed in an invisible God. We believed in a God that you could not represent. You couldn't represent in your mind, you couldn't represent in your artwork, you couldn't, there's no representation of God, and, and yeah, that, that creates a little bit of an emotional burden on the person. Now, if you're talking about a child, well, children don't have that dichotomy in their thinking. I mean, what the cutoff point is, it was a matter of debate, but, but if, if the child is so innocent they don't even appreciate that that's what they're doing, then, you know, then like, what do you asking? like them to, 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 to deny God? But if you, if you have the sophistication to realize what you're doing, then you also have the sophistication to, to try and, yeah, recognize that God is, the fancy word for this is, transcendent. And yeah, that's hard. It's very hard. Um, and that, again, made Jews, even in a world of everybody worshiping and everybody practicing religious rites, and, and made Jews seem very, very weird. seems
0: like Christians are...
2: I don't want to go into it, I
0: know.
2: Um, but I will just say, it's an interesting thing, that in Christianity there's a whole debate about iconography because of this, um, whether or not like depictions of their saints and stuff is a problem or not, and I'm not going to go into this. It, these are complicated issues, um, but yeah, it's, it's it, you know, I mean, Islam tends to take a very Islam and Christianity both branched off of Judaism, and Islam tends to take a very extreme view of this. Um, that's why there are no representations at all in, in Islamism, broadly speaking, to some small sects. But yeah, so Judaism is like that. I mean, we, we, we Representations of things God has done,
1: yeah.
2: but not of God. Yeah? Uh,
1: so I'm just confused because if like... Me too. Uh-huh.
2: <laughs> Me too. Just yeah. I want you we're in the same okay, boat. Perfect. Don't assume because I'm the one teaching I have this all figured out. <laughs> Not true.
0: I'm just like emotions are being used to repre- like represent as an analogy
2: because they're impactful.
0: Because they're impactful, but then how does that. Differentiate from what you were saying about how it like couldn't that lead to paganism
2: also? It it, it could, and this is one of the the why the Rambam, and Maimonides, and, and other people in this thought think it's so important that alongside these descriptions, these these verbal linguistic descriptions, we also educate people as their minds develop to know how to take them um, and know how to interpret them. Um, I mean, by the way, we do this in language all the time. Has anyone here ever studied physics? Okay, so we, we have a term called, um, we, we say things like, for instance, the electrons are excited.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: We're literally taking an emotional state as borrowed terminology to help mm-hmm. us, like, we do this all the time. We, we extend the things we're familiar with in language to help us make sense of other things. And that's how things seem very real to us, right? It would be very hard for most people to learn physics um, if, if, if we were to like kind of use like a very precise terminology thing, it wouldn't you could do this. You could say that the electrons have a higher a higher energy level that leads that 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 that, that leads to an instability, right? But it's just easier to say that electrons are excited and more people get what you mean. Um you know, if somebody were to actually start believing that electrons are like, oh, I'm so excited, <laughs> I want to go, like then you have a problem, right? What? Yeah. But you're extending the meanings, right? And so that's basically what I'm saying, is that God does the same thing when he writes a Torah, and the rabbis do the same thing when they, when they give their parables. And as a person matures, they need to be educated that, no, we're, the language is used that way because the most important thing is that it, the basic core message that God is real and relevant and is impactful cuts through. But how do you conceptualize that? You have to, you have to push yourself to the, to the limit of what you can fathom. Now, again, when you're a child, it's very different because children, again, don't have that... Just get, I, I, two of my sons were arguing many years ago. Um, they were like eight and seven or nine and eight. I don't remember exactly. Um, about who was the worst, worst villain. Haman, Haman from the Purim story, who tried to wipe out all the Jews, or Paro, Pharaoh from the, the Pesach story. So, um, I said, well, and they were arguing. Like I tried to help like, mediate their arguments. I said, okay, so what you're saying is that Haman is worse because he wanted to wipe out all the Jews. Like, he wanted to like, kill all of them. You know, Paro just wanted to like, kill some and enslave others. Like, it's not as big of a thing. It's not a total genocide, right? So that makes Haman seem far worse. And what you're saying is that Haman actually never harmed anybody. Haman like, gets killed within three days of hatching his plot. Whereas like, Paro succeeded in enslaving the Jewish people for a long time and causing a lot of pain and misery. Right. So basically what you're arguing about is should we judge them more based on their intent rewards when they actually did? Now, like, we all understand both sides of the issue. They could not see the other side of the issue. Each one was like, no, 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 like, the other side doesn't count. Because when you're at that age, it's, like, it's very hard to just realize that there's more than one perspective on something. It's not impossible. So we have to, we have to be a lot more um, simplistic when dealing with a mind that is truly that simple and then when, as our minds become more sophisticated we have to like, demand ourselves that's, that's, that's basically the position here and, and it becomes a never ending task because as much as you think you figured out what we really mean by these terms and what we really mean by these analogies as you become more nuanced and more sophisticated in your thinking you're able to appreciate that oh that actually is a kind of like um, just a, 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 a crass analogy for what really the idea is and in that sense, by the way, we can say that people can be closer and further from God in the sense of how clear is it to them that God is really not like a person, God is really not like a physical being, God is really not like us. How much is, how much is that really clear to them and how much is that just like, sort of? Yeah? So so one that does not
0: believe in God, like, I'm just trying to see the counter argument, like, how do they believe that, like, we, like,
2: came into this earth? Someone who believes that we didn't, doesn't believe in God? Yeah. Um, you cannot believe coherently that reality comes into being without believing that there is a God. So you are forced into one of two options. Either you don't believe reality comes into being or you believe in a God. Now, believing in God does not necessarily get you all the way to religion because religion is going to depend we go back to what we did in that previous class. You still need... God to have a will that he reveals, right? So, um, but like if you were to ask like someone um, who's like a materialist, they would actually say that the universe doesn't really come into being in, in, in any sense so that you don't really need to have a God that creates it. They would deny that. So, um, now, to be fair, when we're saying God, we're meaning more than just something that, that causes things to exist and causes things to come into being. We're actually saying a being that has a will that reveals it and conveys it. I right? think that's going to be the next set of principles. Yes.
1: Are you saying people, you
0: know, Breslov Jews or whatever? I should say uh, people who follow the, the Rabbi—they're um, closer to idolatry. Right?
2: No. Generally, what so 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 th- th- there is a view, and again. It's debatable how much of this is really Rav and actual view, but it's definitely a legitimate interpretation of it. Is that one should just ignore this issue and just talk to God like he's your father and not worry about, like, well, I mean, God's not a person, so how does he really feel? And da, 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 what do we mean by he feels? Just like, 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 go not to actively relate, not in other words. Not to say, okay, I know God is like this, but instead of relating to him like that, just kind of just forget about the issue altogether. Like, try to bring yourself back to the simplicity of a child, which is different than having a sense of like, okay, I know what I'm doing is slightly a distortion, but it's what works for me. It's almost like saying, like, like try to forget that you figured, you, you okay. discovered this. Very it's, cool. It's a very different. It, it's 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 a it's itself a mystical practice because yes. it requires you to kind of like get out of your own
1: adult like brain. Amazing.
2: Right. I mean, look, that that can lead to that. It doesn't necessarily have to go there, but yeah. Um, yeah, yes. Um, I was thinking about the
0: um, when you were saying like when we interpret God as angry as we sense anger based on what happens to us. So like it kind of it seems to be like it sets up the situation that's like not so different from like say when you're training a dog. Like I give you food when you do this, and then so you learn to do that. And like my question is, is like, I heard a little bit the idea in your in what you're saying that what distinguishes us from animals is like the education that comes. But like, is there any like qualitative higher qualitative value in say like doing a mitzvah because you're like thinking about it and having like this higher understanding of what you're doing versus just doing the mitzvah as like a dog who sits when you feed it?
2: Yes. Um, I, I'll, uh, what I want to say, before answering your question directly, people, in the, in the Rambam's view, in Maman's view, and, and I think this is not unique to him, most Jewish thinkers seem to follow some version of this train of thought, and it seems to bear out an experience. We are like animals plus. And what I mean by that is, if you want to, let's say, get a person to not steal because it is wrong, you do not start by getting them to fathom the moral abhorrence of theft. You start by giving them positive and negative feedback of, um, regarding actual acts of theft or not stealing. And, so, and you, you have narratives around stealing being wrong. And so the person becomes basically trained to get the social recognition <laughs> that funny. stealing He's is wrong. A mm.
0: oh.
2: Stealing is stealing is bad. Stealing gets me ostracized. Stealing steal right. And then you have what what Kabbalists would call a clea, a vessel to put the light, which is the the awareness of the moral truth. It never works the other way around. Um and, and this is why like if you like try to make a, a good moral argument that certain thing is a, is a moral good, you're not going to succeed in getting people to like change their behavior as a general rule. But if you can get people to live in accordance with that moral principle, train them to do so using reward, punishment and narrative, then you can enlighten them as to the true meaning of things. Okay. And so yes, The Rambam actually quite clearly says that the reward and punishment in this world is really facilitatory. It's not the ultimate idea of reward and punishment. And he does say that to do things simply because of reward and punishment is a lower level for beginners. Um, But it's a necessary thing. And you really can't skip it um, in some sense. Um, And this is what parenting is so important and why parenting is hard. Because the most important part of parenting is that a child gets consistent feedback about the rights and the wrongs of living life so that as they become a mature adult, they, they, they're, they're a vessel for, the, for that awareness. And to put this in the opposite, if you live a life in such a way that you're doing something that is wrong, you are going to try to come up with some kind of worldview that renders that thing as correct. Um, we, 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 we cannot live in a state of dissonance where our worldview is one way and our, and our actual patterns of living are the other way. And the stronger one is our actual patterns of living. The mind will, will work with you. So, we, do we want to get to a place where we're not stealing because it is wrong? Because we are, we are, we are, um, you know, doing good things because we see the intrinsic value of their goodness? Yes. But you cannot get to that unless you train yourself or train your children, train um, the people. Yeah. So, the danger is Like, very often is that when we don't realize that we need to transition from one stage to the next, right? That the training is enough, you know? Training is really supposed to primarily be finished by the time you hit puberty in some ideal sense. Because as you start hitting puberty, it starts being about why does this resonate?
1: Oh, you mean rewarding punishment as far as your teacher's like, good job, you made a bracha. Not necessarily, because I thought you meant like... Somehow we should be aware of our reward and punishment from our due to our actions from God. You also, mean, okay,
2: also, well, okay. also. Now that's a harder task. Yes, yeah.
1: No, yeah. And there's
2: revealed well, right. Things, so things, right, right. And so you get into this these more complicated things about reward and punishment. But, but yes, on a very simple thing. So the idea is that when the Torah says when you do this, God will get angry. Um, is supposed to train the people not to sin. And once they're not sinning, they have the ability to reflect upon what is so wrong, what is so ungodly about the sin. But while they're sinning, they can't do that. But that doesn't imply that God is actually Okay. Okay. Next class, what we're going to do is we're going to take the other approach, the Kabbalistic approach, which is to say, oh no, no, when it says that God loves us, he really loves us, just not really him that's doing the loving.
1: Whoa. It gets a little more complicated. Yeah, so that would be the next one. Thank mess. you.
2: And then we'll quickly go through time. <laughs> no, really, we are having to time relatively quickly. There's more than four dimensions. Thank
0: you. What?
2: There's more than four dimensions.
1: According to Kabbalah, uh, uh, quantum physics,
2: string theory. String theory. theory says 10 dimensions, and so it's Kabbalah, right? It's not string theory. It's not 10 dimensions. string mm-hmm. theory. Oh, yeah. You like string theory? I don't like it. I, I hate string theory. I hate string theory. Why do you hate string theory? I hate a little yeah, it's, a not much it's, it's basically it's basically you don't understand something and so you come up with a non-falsifiable unnecessarily complicated mathematical construct to avoid having to answer the question that you can't answer which I think you can basically reduce to a cop-out rather than like acknowledging like maybe we've reached the limits of our inquiry or we need to approach it differently actually
0: reminds me of this whole how you can make
2: that's the same way as thinking. I really dislike string theory. I really dislike string theory. Do you know do you know do you know what it's like speaking to a string theorist? I have this amazing theory that say, like, Yes, but your theory contradicts this data. Well that's okay, we'll just add this. Now it doesn't contradict anymore. You just keep doing that over and over again. Whatever.
1: Okay. I'm sure all the
2: string theorists on the recording or listening to the recording being very upset with me now. Ah, yeah.